So, um, so we'll we will kick off. Um, uh, so, a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, trade sales, business development, and strategic alternatives, giving you more options in today's challenging environment. You can follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell. Our show today is more selling to payers in 2024. The strengths of the payer tech budget, the evolving challenges, and the spending priorities. Um, this show is actually called More Selling to Payers because last year we did a show with Liz on selling to payers and the uh, digital platform collapsed halfway through the show. So maybe it was record demand from our audience or maybe you just made a, made a big announcement on the show, uh, Liz. But uh, so this is now months have passed and the, these are issues where freshness matters. So we're gonna get a, a new and fresh perspective on issues around the payer, which is a perennial strong topic. So our guest today is Liz Quo. Uh, uh, Liz is the Chief Commercial Officer of Everly Health. So that is a really interesting story in digital health that a lot of us have been following for a long time. Um, and she's the author of the forthcoming book, Digital MD, Revolutionizing the Future of Healthcare. You can follow her at uh, on Twitter at Liz Quo. Um, this show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. You can subscribe on Apple and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the format of the show. It'll last about 60 minutes this time. And the first half will be, we'll be talking about the news and macro issues affecting us all. And the second half will be focusing on Liz's particular expertise, which is selling to payers and what's going on with the payers. Um, after that, we'll be taking, and throughout, we'll be taking questions in the text from our audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account with Colin. To register just where you are, you know, be begin the registration process, you still have time, um, and then you'll show up as yourself and you can ask questions. Um, and so with that, Liz, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, your current job, uh, and also um, how you've interacted with payers in the past? Uh, sure. Uh, so I am Chief Commercial Officer of Everly Health. We are a home testing company at the forefront of this diagnostic um, home testing uh, solutioning for chronic disease management in addition to wellness. And so thinking through hormone testing, fertility testing, um, food sensitivities and food allergies, in addition to what payers deem are medical necessity for uh, chronic disease management. And that includes things like um, colon cancer screens, uh, A1C, diabetes, cholesterol, and now we have a new test called uh, for chronic kidney disease testing. And these are through dry blood spots and our urine samples. And um, we're just really excited. I think for me, um, I was recruited to come to Everly based off my payer background. So I came from Anthem Elevance, where I was our deputy chief clinical officer on the Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial line of business, in addition to the employer side. So worked on a lot of innovation, building the tech and also the product side into Anthem, working with a lot of vendors uh, at the time, you know, just thinking through what 
would I have done if I knew what I know now uh, with my prior companies? I've been a serial entrepreneur. I've started a few digital health companies. Um, most recently, we sold one to Consumer Medical that was sold to Alight. It was a telehealth service, second opinion service. Um, and so knowing that I would love to educate folks across the board on how you think about not only starting with healthcare and who to go after, do you go after a certain Medicaid state first? Do you go to consumer first? Do you get payers involved and use that as a tool to get people to buy in as they tend to be gatekeepers? Or do you think about it from the perspective of going after a payer and an employer strategy? So happy to share that in the coming um, show. And in the meantime, would love to you know just dive in about everything that's been happening at JPM and other places. That's great, thank you. So by the way, um, very roughly, about what proportion of tests at Everly Well would be generated primarily by the consumer? So the consumer is thinking, I would like an STD test. I'd like it to be extra mm. private or something like that versus what's the much more standard way, which is that some doctor you know, ordered it and there's not a lot, there's, and now it's gonna be sent to the consumer's home maybe, but there's not that much consumer involvement in the initiative of the, of the process. Uh, so pe people think of you as, consumer is literally ordering the test themselves. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. is, that, is, that, is that most of the business or is it also doctors doing standard test ordering? It's not half. Uh, so half of our business is consumer paying out of pocket. They can use their um, any kind of FSA spending accounts. And we support any of the tests that, as you know, aren't always prescribed and or um, when there's a long wait list for specialists and for, let's say, a gastroenterologist and you want to do a food diary, but you want to sort of just eliminate foods from your diet to see if it makes you feel better. And so those tests are uh, not covered, but they are um, ones that people will pay out of pocket for. Uh, on the flip side, we also sell to the enterprise model where we're building um, a lot of HEDIS and STARS measures. I can go into that, but supporting uh, what a lot of payers deem as in, uh, required uh, chronic care management. So um, there's a new HEDIS measure for chronic kidney disease. And that's why this year we're very excited to build that out for a lot of our payer clients. As we mentioned, with our 50% of our business coming from the enterprise model, we see a ton of growth there. And we're looking at it both from preventive care HEDIS measures, but also thinking about it from the employer side. And the goal right now is also to bridge not only home testing, but also with telehealth and so virtual care, doing a test and then treating model. Because we're seeing a lot of, as we all know, after COVID, uh, virtual care is sort of table stakes. So being able to talk to a doctor or through a chat bot or other things synchronously or asynchronously is not as useful as if you have the surrounding additional companion diagnostics, let's say home testing or other specialty care, or can you get... Um, let's say dermatology cause certain types of uh, treatment sent to your home. That, that, that's really interesting. Thanks. Um, and so next we're going to talk about JP Morgan. So if our, if our, which was last week. And so if our audience wants to, um, uh, you know, to uh, throw in any questions about JP Morgan, feel free to in the chat. So I'll, I'll just make a couple remarks about JP Morgan. I'd love to get your, your thoughts. So I went and, one thing I looked for and noticed was that the level of crowdedness in Union Square, San Francisco, was not high. So in the past, before the pandemic, it was absurdly high. Um, it was uh, people told stories and remarked about how remarkably crowded it was. So it was not high. So I think 
something has happened with the pandemic, you know, causing people to sort of level reset. And, and I, based on that, I think fewer people are going. It's an unusual conference because only about one-tenth of people are actually going to the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Investor Conference in the Westin St. Francis Hotel. Most people go, their own company rents out facilities for overnights and meetings, and then they have meetings all, all day long and go to cocktail parties at night. Um, uh, so uh, I think a little bit of the uh, I saw a lot fewer cocktail parties that were for digital health. So mm -hmm. I've thrown my own cocktail parties for digital health at um, at J.P. Morgan, and there there was fewer. Um, Rock Health stood out as an especially good um, evening cocktail party at J.P. Morgan. Um, uh, the, so we and, and I I think some digital health companies, young software companies in healthcare, and the investors who fund them. I think they are being wooed by and are going to the health conference in October in Las mm -hmm. Vegas, which I think is intentionally put a couple months before JP Morgan um, and in a luxury in a, in a place with nice weather, with a luxury, with luxury facilities to win people away from JP Morgan. I think that's intentional. And so I think the health conference continues to grow, continues to successfully pull some of that away from JP Morgan. Now, JP Morgan, the investment bank itself, the core of its business at this conference is public investors in public life science companies, especially mm -hmm. biotech, that's the core. So that will always be strong because those people will always be going there. But people who are in you know, a, a different industry really, selling software to health plans or hospitals or employers, um, they c can and may choose to go to um, the, the health conference, which which for now is before JP Morgan. And then if they spend their budget doing that and achieve some goals doing that, there's then no reason to go to JP Morgan, which is also a very expensive conference. Everything is, is more expensive in that area during JP Morgan. So now the sense I got from talking to people was I talked to young company, young software companies in healthcare and the VC investors who back them. And both of them had said that this was, uh, has been a really tough quarter the last three months. And a really tough year and VC investing is down. Everyone knows that. Um, and they didn't really see they, they thought it would continue to stay down. There's a lot of pain and it's going to have to work its way through the system like a pig mm -hmm. through an anaconda. Um, and they, they didn't necessarily see, um, you know, bright, bright light at, at the end of the tunnel. Um, now, and two other things. The first is that and we're going to touch on this later, but, I see attempts to open the IPO window. I think we have, we there's a decent chance, I'll call it 50%, we could open the IPO window in the next uh, two quarters, including this quarter. Uh, if that happens, I think that will have a very positive impact on the entire funding ecosystem of digital health. And then secondly, Rock Health came out with its report summarizing last quarter and last 12 months as well. And that confirmed what people were saying, which was that the fourth quarter there's a lot of hope fourth quarter would see some lift in terms of level of funding. It didn't. Uh, we're still at a low point, a relative low point. Um, so the Rock Health report, um, you know, sort of confirmed what people were saying. And I think the people thought the outlook was more turbulence and no improvement in fundraising, no improvement in M&A as we look into the coming year. Actually, I'm more optimistic than that because the IPO window and other fact and, and M&A trends and we can get into that as well. So that was what I what I saw. Now, deals are still getting done. In fact, there's a bit of a barbell going on in terms of deals getting done, which is to say that young companies riding hot new investment themes are seeing funding. 
and also more proven lower risk companies, maybe at the Series C phase where they're, they're, they de-risked some of it, they have a hit product, are seeing yes. some funding. And then it's, it's the it's A's and B's who someone coming up for their A or for their B who met all of the criteria that were set two years ago is suddenly finding that the that they can't count on the people they were talking to and the standards have gone up and that sort of thing. So we'd love to hear yeah. what you think about uh, JP Morgan. Uh, yeah, a few things. I think JP Morgan tends to be one of those uh, very interesting, com uh, I would say, organizations that usually have executives, investors, analysts, uh, especially with the public companies. It's been biotech heavy. So I think with health tech, uh, if that's a focus, I think people kind of generate satellite conferences around um, for partner meetings, networking events and whatnot. I do think for startups, it's pretty useful to just attend the uh, satellite events. You don't even need to pay for JP. I mean, don't tell the organizers, but generally speaking, people just show up and they have events around. Um, I will say, though, that you're right about Vive and Health, uh, both Vive, which is usually in March, and uh, and Health, HLTH, the, both have been taking over a lot of the startup space in health tech. Um, I will say, especially for media outlets, though, a lot of journalists like to show up at both, especially when we're thinking about JPM. Um, I think that there are these networking events that are very high yield. I mean, it's like boom, 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 hour by hour, people are meeting. And if you're in the deal making, if you're in the business of investing and or like meeting different folks, it's a really nice place to show up. Um, with regards to Rock Health, I agree. I think some of the annual reports was talking about just this last year, right, of the low funding numbers. There wasn't significant increase in M&A. Um, but they also mentioned that a lot of startups uh, created creative financing measures, everything from extension rounds, um, unlabeled raises and silent deals to try to secure funding and or have aqua hires. Um, I will say in 2024, though, the outlook is looking, like you said, a bit better. Um, we're seeing some startups that are using not only the bridge rounds, but are looking at hopefully M&A activity picking up. Um, public markets may also see a recomposition with some companies facing delisting. I think that was going to be interesting. We'll see how that continues. Um, and the year, I think, will also be characterized by consolidation. So, um, I mean, even today with the report, it's been fascinating to see some of the VCs going after and acquiring hospital groups like General Catalysts and others. So we're seeing some emerging segments like digital obesity care, value-based care enablement um, that's gaining some traction. And we're also seeing, of course, AI companies um, doing fairly well. Coming from Anthem, we were doing a lot of prior auth AI work. That's, gonna, I think, going to continue to grow as we're looking at big data. Um, but overall, I would say that there's going to be a lot of great, hopefully, lifts in the coming year contributing to innovation. Yeah, thank you. That, that was a great summary. And, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll reiterate something I mentioned, which is that I think there's a very decent chance we've got index levels at all time highs like NASDAQ uh, and others. And that's causing companies to seek to IPO. And if we have a couple successful IPOs, then the IPO window will be open and many other companies will IPO. And that could have a transformatively positive impact on even private funding in, in venture, venture funding of, of digital health. And so we want to see that, um, and that's the, the bright spot. Um, uh, but also you mentioned uh, delistings. So it's hard to remember what it was like two or three years ago when uh, you know the sector was in its greatest boom ever, uh, and it was very easy to raise the next round. And I saw many companies go out for 
an IPO uh, or SPAC, which is a, a different way to IPO. And some of them, I just, you know, I, I, I just briefly looked at them and I said, this is not ready for an IPO. And an IPO can be a tough um, process if you don't have steady growth, you know, easily ahead of you. Um, and right. uh, so I, I thought, you know, they probably should, shouldn't IPO. Um, and th now what's happened is a number of these companies have, that you know, markets have pulled in, and risky companies have seen their stock prices fall even further. So a lot of these companies have seen their stock price fall eighty to ninety percent. Um, mm -hmm. And not only is that does that wound uh, public buyers of equities, causing them to be cautious in the future at investing in digital health, which is which is bad, but also uh, it can lead to them being delisted, which is to say that they, they might, there might be a requirement that their stock trade for at least a dollar on an exchange. And it, when it was priced, that seemed like it would be no problem. But now um, their, their price or their market cap is too small for the, or their liquidity, their amount of trading in them is too small for the exchange. They might be delisted. And this, if that happens to a couple of digital health companies, this will have a sort of a reputational contagion. Uh, which is mm. to say that people will think there's something wrong with the whole sector if multiple digital health companies are being delisted by exchanges. So that's, I hadn't thought of that. That certainly could happen. We may be in for some of that. Um, you know, investors, when they see that, they tend to just want to stay away from the whole sector for a while before coming back or whatever. So anyway, um, but uh, so then some macro news. So I'll, I'll throw out just some macro news I'm following. So the, the first is, is that, um, if you cycle back to just a month ago, there was elation in the market. It seemed like from a, people are very concerned about interest rates and inflation, and it seemed like things were going great after two years of trouble with interest rates and inflation. Things were going great, and it seemed like we had the you know the uh, a reasonably good story of uh, of inflation decreasing. And that this was going to cause the Fed, which had really hiked rates in the last two years, to lower rates. And you had even people confidently saying we're going to see, I think the risk-free rate from the Fed is at 5.5%. Um, and so people were saying the Fed's going to cut that rate by 1.5% in the first quarter or in the first two quarters of the year. Well, and so that was causing elation because people thought we're going to see the stock market go up. Uh, uh, and uh, and investors are going to get are going to feel FOMO and want to get in. Well, what's happened since then is we had another CPI report. It's come out a little higher than expected, uh, and this has curbed that that elation. We're still at record levels of indexes, um, uh, but um, it's caused people to think, well, maybe the Fed's not going to cut by 1.5 points, which would be a lot, and maybe they'll cut by less, and maybe it won't all happen in the first quarter. Maybe it'll It'll be spread over two quarters or something. So there's a little less um, excitement about that. Uh, so um, and then I just so that's uh, the thinking about inflation and and rate cuts, the hoped for rate cuts in general. Rate cuts are a really good thing. So tech does really well in low inflation, low interest rate environments. So the combination of possible high inflation and high interest rates has been very bad for tech valuation levels. Um, and I checked the NASDAQ, and the NASDAQ is at um, uh, 14,800, which means it's up 48% in 
in the last 12 months. So basically to be a genius, all you would have had to have done was put your money in a NASDAQ index a year ago and you'd be looking fa fantastic today. So anyway, um, do you want to, so the, the combination of these three factors is still pretty good. So Liz, any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like you're the expert on the economy. I am just seeing a lot of uh, interesting monetization strategies like global reimbursement opportunities. We could talk about consumer spend on digital health. Um, there's a lot of, I would say, excitement around that um, that's picking up because I think there was a tightening a bit around consumer spend in healthcare. And now I think it's coming back. Um, also, some interesting therapeutic areas. We can delve into some details, but I agree with you. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, and so then um, now we, we touched on this a little bit, but um, so KKR has filed for Brightspring to IPO. So what that means is that that probably right now uh, uh, bankers are going around to mutual funds and the biggest hedge funds and asking and, and touring the management team and asking for uh uh, for commitments uh, at, at certain price levels. Um, and then, and this is often done very privately, and then all of a sudden they announce that they are seeking to float during a given week, and then they, and then they float. Um, and so, it's, so the, the IPO window is officially closed, and what that means is that few companies can go out, but those that do go out, they need to be really high quality companies. They need to be market leaders that are profitable, that have that whose margins look nice compared to their peers, that have strong stories behind them. Those are the ones with, with concerted effort that can go out. And then um, what the what what the what Wall Street, what the stock market, what buy side investors want is they want the price to go up about 15 percent and then stay there. That's what they, that, that's all they're asking for. That's all they want. Um, and uh, if that happens, then more companies that are on the verge of going out or have already filed will go out. Um, and if, if a couple of them are successful, especially in tech and life science and healthcare, then the ground will be ready for digital health unicorns, digital health software unicorns to go out. Those are usually not earnings positive, usually high growth, usually a little riskier. Um, and that's why they're not going out first. And so, and, and, and that's what it looks like for the IPO window to open. Um, now also waiting in the wings is apparently Waystar. Waystar is another large uh, healthcare services company. It's in revenue cycle management um, for providers. Um, so those are two that are in the wings. And so we're, we're, in a, we're in a good position if the NASDAQ is at near all time highs and companies are saying they're going to go public. Uh, that means we could see the window open. So have I you have heard any more about this, Liz? Um, when you talk about Waystar, I just think of succession. If anyone else feels that way, it's just a, I just would laugh about it, Waystar, Royco, which is, um, if anyone followed that show, it just always makes me think that way. But it is revenue cycle management, which is interesting. Um, I think I we're looking at some interesting prospectus, which is the ways that you're mentioning right before an IPO. It's a formal document of a company intending to go public and thinking through that. Um, and it usually has a business overview, some risk factors, use of proceeds, what people are going to do to grow the next step. Um, as we mentioned, digital health companies tended in the past not to need to be profitable. But in this coming year, I th definitely think if they are not, they need to have a path to profitability. That's very clear. Um, especially when they're thinking about financial information, about what the management team is going to do. 
Um, the prospectus usually also includes things like ownership structure, cap capitalization, um, and then the industry analysis. But I think uh, as we're looking at digital health companies, there are some opportunities. We did talk about some delisting, which um, we'll still see what the appetite is, but um, it'll be, I think, in the coming year, like you said, with a few of these that you just mentioned, hopefully it opens up the market. And if people feel optimistic and there's appetite and they're successful, then I think it'll lead the road and uh, move us in the right direction. And I, I'm hearing that buy side investors want IPO product. They have money. They want They want to invest. And they're just worried that they're going to make a commitment. Oftentimes, the early investors in IPOs make a commitment to stay in for a year. Um, mm. And so if and that provides liquidity to the market. Uh, and so then if they if they stay in for a year and the price declines 30 percent during that year, that's hor that's a horrible experience. They don't want any more of these. That's why they want to go up 15 percent and stay up. Um, and so um, uh, and we tried to open the IPO window. People may remember in September, October, November, and a lot of, and some went up approximately 15 percent. Most were flat or went down 15 percent or so. And that's why it, that there were no legs. There was no momentum on that and, and effectively remained closed. And so the fact we're trying it again just three or four months later is a good sign. It means that a, a lot of the pistons are in the right, are working in the right direction. We just need, you know, uh, the stocks to, to stay up, basically. Um, so uh, the next is any any reports come out in the last um couple weeks that you pay attention to, Liz. So I'll, I'll mention, um, you know, Rock Health last week came out with its funding report for 2023. Um, and, uh, you know, they, 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 they identified 10.7 billion in funding across 492 deals for the last, for the prior 12 months. That's the lowest level in five years since 2019. Um, and the fourth quarter, was just as low as the third quarter. So people have been hoping for some lift in the fourth quarter. No, fourth quarter was was low. They also said they were disappointed. There was not a lot of M&A activity in 2023 as compared to prior years. People are, are hoping they'll see that. And they called last year a year of belt tightening and lifeline measures and locking down, um, or I'm sorry, the uh, they said they called the future this coming year I'm sorry, they called 2023 the year of belt tightening, lifeline measures, and locking down extension rounds, whereas they say 2024 is going to be a year of facing the music. So that's going to be companies that belt tightened in 2023 to achieve certain milestones. And if they don't achieve them, then they may wind up you know, winding down being an asset sale, being acquired uh, in a buyer's market or something like that. So that mm -hmm. was their report. And all I'd add to that is just something I said before, which is I see, I see you know, uh, some potential bright lights in the form of the IPO window opening and also some, which would then uh, lead to increased venture funding at all stages. Um, and then also I'm seeing in, in the market of healthcare services, buyers of software product, I'm seeing trends in a couple of areas toward maturation and consolidation. And so that means you're going to see vendors who are consolidators buying point solutions uh, in those areas. So I especially see this in provider tech, which is tech selling into the provider budgets, and also in employer health tech, which is vendors selling tech into the employer health budget. Those are two areas I see I see that in. So Liz, any any, any report? Do you, want, do you want to dwell on the Rock Health report or any other uh, reports? I, 
Uh, Rock Health is a really good one. I also looked at research to guidance. They looked at a, you know, healthcare, digital health specifically in the, um, I would say in 2023 and had some predictions for 24. So some of the things that they talked about were reimbursement model opportunities, the potential digital health solutions across different regulatory environments, depending on the healthcare system readiness and um, how they're thinking about, I would say also monetization strategies for what's crucial to digital health's long-term viability and securing payment from health plans and the government. Um, so I think a third thing is not only thinking about negotiating pricing and contracting with healthcare providers. Um, I'll talk a bit, I can, after this, mention the ways that different kind of vendors work with payers, right? From uh, a vendor contract as almost like a reseller to a provider when you're a provider contract and how people do that versus um, consumer side. Um, but, you know, some of the other things I mentioned was consumer spending in digital health is continuing. In the fitness, medical apps, um, there's also a lot of interest in the mental health space, especially emerging as a business potential for metabolism, endocrinology, things that were also on the obesity side. Women's health is another big trend, um, jumped into the third or fourth spot across the board in a lot of interest in this space. Um, and then there's also chronic care management. So a lot of digital health solutions are looking at evidence-based symptom improvement and also cost reduction. So return on the investment within 12 months, which payers oftentimes look at when you're trying to reduce chronic care um, costs. And then ultimately looking at also digital health companies from healthcare professionals perspective, um, thinking about how you engage them, budget allocation in hospitals, um, and then startup corporate partnerships. There's a lot going on right now in startups working with hospitals to co-invest. So hospitals are now thinking about putting together warrants where they say, I'm going to help you pilot in my hospital, but I'm also going to want a piece of your valuation. And if you have an upside based off of my pilot with you, we'd like to um, build that together. So I'm seeing some interesting corporations and partnerships across research institutions, hospitals, hospital chains even. That's great, thanks. And we've suddenly got a lot of great questions and I'm actually gonna speed run us through the first half of the show and then get to the second half just because we're already at the, the half hour mark. But Stephen asks, does Rock Health Data include health systems and payers funding their own innovation center companies? Interesting, my understanding is that Rock Health is going based off of press release data. And so uh, if it was significant enough to warrant a press release, and certainly young companies always want there to be a press release that names the number, value, that sort of thing, then it would be included in Rock Health's data. And oftentimes those are done by the corporate venture fund. So. Kaiser Permanente Ventures is literally the vehicle that's used to invest in a digital health company that's selling into Kaiser Permanente, for example. Uh, and, and that would definitely count as that is a venture investment in digital health right there. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it comes out of the hospital treasury or the hospital, some sort of capital budget of the hospital, and it might not get mentioned. But if it's but but usually the young companies want it to be announced and mentioned. And so they so they, they will be so that I hope that that's helpful. Um, so. Uh, why don't we just skip to uh, in our agenda to talk about, because we're already at the half hour mark, uh, upcoming conferences. So um, Vive is coming up and Hims is coming up. Uh, and so I'm planning to go to Vive. I'm not planning to go to Hims this year. Interestingly, uh, I think that Vive, which is run by the health people, it has been built to, um, to uh, take over Hims. Um, so Hims is an enormous trade show of vendors that sell into the hospital CIO. That is the core of Hims. 
Over time, it's expanded to include vendors who sell in the hospital, CFO, and other hospital departments. So revenue cycle management and clinical decision support tools and other things that sell in the hospital budgets. That was really big at the time of the EMRs. Um, and they've even expanded a little bit to include payers as well as providers. Um, but but that's been tough because they're a nonprofit that is run by hospital CIOs. So how mm -hmm. how can they really expand to cover payers and CFOs if it's a nonprofit that is run by CIOs? Um, is so um, uh, and so it, with those limitations, Vive has come along and is offering a conference focused, I think, on innovation for payers and providers. So this is one of the richest, biggest areas of all of digital health not focused on life sciences, not focused on employer tech, not focused on pharma tech, but, um, but it is focused on payers and providers. And they do a really good job of getting investors there. So they do a good job of getting young, innovative companies there and investors there. So I'm calling Vive an investor conference, um, whereas Hims is a trade show. Um, and I looked up and Vive tickets are $2,600. They, you know, they do a great job, it's fun. There's a lot of great programming. Hims, I looked up tickets. It's in order. So Vive is February twenty fifth to eighth um, in Los Angeles. Tickets twenty six hundred dollars, and then Hims March eleventh to fifteenth in Orlando. Tickets uh, one thousand three hundred dollars. So um, you know, of the two, I'm going to go to Vive this year. You could achieve your objective at both. Um, so Hims is going to have all the big vendors, the McKessons, the the Cerners, um, hospitals are going to be there. Hospital CIOs are going to be there. Huge trade show floor. People walking the floor, learning competitive information, finding out the business development people at the different companies, possibly meeting with people from the office of the hospital CIO or CFO to sell to, that sort of thing. That's what's at HIMSS. Then there's a decent representation of VCs, and even bankers go to HIMSS because there's so many large companies at HIMSS. But... Um, uh, Vive is you're going to have more investors there um, and young companies there. And just in my experience, they had a little more difficulty attracting the, the big companies to Vive. Although there, there will be a lot of uh, hospital, uh, hospital IT executives uh, will be there, um, but they have trouble attracting the big software vendors and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So it, it, it's a mix, um, but for those of you who are in um, the world of payers and providers who are raising money, I would say Vive is a good conference to go to. You know, try to meet in person people who may be investors who maybe you only met by a Zoom, by a Zoom call before or use it to catalyze a, a fundraise, that sort of thing. So uh, Liz, any thoughts on, are you going to Vive or HIMSS and any thoughts on, uh, or, or what are you going to? In the next sure, I spoke at Vive last year. I uh, usually attend this. I can't this year uh, due to some uh, personal family vacation time, but um, do plan to um, go to Health Evolution. That's another one. It's um, with a lot of payers, providers, health systems, CEOs that are um, convening at a really good time. I found that to be very useful. So um, that's in early April. And what I heard of Health Evolution is that it's an outstanding conference in the world of payers and providers and that you can't go unless you're a payer or, provi or provider executive. They, they don't want vendors who are trying to sell software there. So you need, you need to already be like a, and maybe this isn't true anymore, but it's very, very elite. 
It's sort of like Davos and your typical you know, soft, scrappy software person can't can't get tickets to Davos. Um, Davos I, I'm very happy. scrappy, so um, I appreciate that. I think, it, yeah, they, they do tend to want uh, not the, if you have a actually um, a sales uh, um, title, they actually tend to not want that. They want like sort of a C-suite executive team that's going there to do some really interesting thought leadership work. Um, and I do think that that, that tends to be sort of how they manage uh, the salesy pitches. That's great. And then personal notices. So any, um, you know, events you're going to, things you're doing, maybe you're appearing on on a podcast or something like this one. Uh, so uh, my own personal notices. So um, my next show is Wednesday, January 31st uh, with Anne DeGeest, a noted VC in digital health. And we're talking about building scalable health tech companies. That, that'll be January 31st. Um, and then my next party is tonight with special guest Liz Quo. So Liz and I are each in half an hour leaving this call and separately heading for a party in downtown Boston. Um, you can find all these events at stephenmordell.eventbrite.com uh, and you can still get a ticket for the, for the Boston event. Um, and, um, uh, and so that's tonight. And Liz is talking about um, you know, issues with, with payers um, at, uh, as a guest of honor at our drinks event tonight, 530 to 8:30 in downtown Boston. Um, so I guess that that's a um, personal notice that is my, the party I'm, I'm hosting, but it's also your personal notice as well. If people want to meet you, they can, they can go there. Any other personal notices for you of, of things you're doing, people can catch you. Um, uh, other than this uh, digital health um, book dig called digital MD, where I'm focused on, talking about the five pairs, we can go into some detail today so that people can get an inroad into what I like to help share with others. It's almost demystifying the payer um, and the provider systems. And um, other than that, that's coming out in July, excited to um, get that going. And um, I'm working on a second book. Um, I'm almost done with that. And that's gonna be through the American College of Healthcare Executives about helping to train and get anyone who is on the provider side, whether they're administrators, um, nurses, doctors, to get into digital health and become healthcare execs. So it's a, a brand new space. Fantastic. So look for that book in July, Digital MD by, by Liz Quo. Um, great. So so then um, the next is um, is the title of the show is Selling to Payers in 2024. So wh why don't we just start off with with What's going on with payers? You know, can you sort of summarize what's going on in their lives? I know some people in payers and their lives have been turned upside down by heat of star ratings in the last uh, year, for example. But what, what's going Are payers feeling rich and like this is a great time to be uh, a payer uh, or are they feeling devastated and poor and attacked from all sides? What, what, what's going on in the lives of payers? I, I do think I'm no longer a peer now, so I don't know exactly how they're feeling, but we are um, with all of my peers um, talking a lot about the fact that during COVID, people stopped utilizing, utilizing healthcare, right? So there were a lot of surpluses in the budget. People actually got their premiums back um, because there's something called an MLR, medical loss ratio, where if you, as a payer, when you're taking premiums and you don't use it up for you as a um and as a patient, you end up getting money back because there is a MLR, there's a ratio. You need to spend enough money from the premium on the patient, on the person, on the member. So um, that no longer is true. Uh, COVID has, um, we've come back now. So people are now getting their mammograms and their colonoscopies and they're now utilizing 
healthcare services. And so there's no surplus, but now they're getting hit on the other side with HEDIS and STARS measures. Um, we are seeing across states some um, getting hurt worse than others. And so um, I know there was a question in the chat about this. So I can um, sort of go through what HEDIS and STARS are, if it's helpful, just so we can talk about that from the perspective of if you're selling a digital health solution, why does that even matter? So what is HEDIS? It's basically healthcare effectiveness data and information. Um, it's a set of it, and there are criteria for it. It's um, supplied by NCQA, which is a um, government entity. It's called the National Committee for Quality Assurance. They establish a process to set HEDIS measures. And when they set them, every year it's new. Um, so for Everly, we qualified for a new one this coming year, which is for chronic kidney screening, which is why we're excited because now it can be not only reimbursed, it's on um, the payer's mind. It's on uh, top of their agenda. Um, and what this tool is, it's used by more than 90% of health plans to measure performance on how they are doing. Funny enough, yes, HEDIS, even though it's it's forcing payers to abide by it because their quality measures are based off of that, it's actually the providers providing it. So that means that the payers have to make sure providers are in network to help them get there. And sometimes um, if, you know, let's say, there are certain measures that it you think you're gonna qualify for, you really wanna understand it. And I'll give you an example. So there are some measures where it's just you check the box. You got a FIT test, which is a colon cancer screen. You poop onto a sheet of paper, you get the test, you don't have blood in your stool, you, you check the box. The other second type of measure is you have to have below or above a certain marker. For example, blood pressure has to be within a certain range. And that's what it, what means, um, it's not just you've got measured blood pressure, you have to have within a certain measurement. Or A1C, which is diabetes, you have to be below seven. If a payer has a lot of people that are above seven, they get a worse score. As opposed to fit, where just check the box, this one means they have to be within a certain range. Then there's a third type of HEDA score, which is, and there are multiple types, but it's important to understand how to qualify for it. The third type is things like, if they actually have a um, high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia, they're on a statin. They're actually taking a cholesterol medication. Um, so that involves, let's say, compliance, uh, medication compliance. So when you're looking at HEDIS measures, you can't just say, oh, this person checked a box. We had a mental health exam, although some of them are, right? It's a health assessment and other things have been done. But it does things like um, someone has to be on a beta blocker after a heart attack or they have to would be within a certain range of blood pressure, or they have a comprehensive diabetes care plan. And then there's also things like just screen. They got their mammogram. Doesn't matter if the mammogram was followed up, but they had their mammogram um, breast screening or a chlamydia screening. It's actually within a certain range. It's ages 18 to 24. Um, so within a certain demographic um, or for the fit test, it's even 45 and above ages. Um, so when you're looking at this content, it's actually pretty important when you're figuring out if yours fits in there and it helps support a payer to get their higher HEDA scores. Um, so that's just one thing I think for digital health companies to understand. Now the flip side is, how do you think about your digital health solution if you don't qualify for HEDIS? Then there's the other areas where you can sell to a potential employer. You can also, um, and we can talk more about how that looks versus if you want to meet the criteria for cost of care. So total medical cost reduction. Um, so that's where people start to say, oh, if it's a digital health solution, let's say it's a remote patient monitoring device, and it allows someone to not have to stay in the hospital for more than um, five days after congestive heart failure. 
um, you can actually discharge them and have them monitored in the home. That's when you actually can reduce medical costs. And the highest buckets of medical costs that a payer experiences, generally speaking, are things like ER visits, um, hospital missions, but not just admissions, it's total missions and length of stay within the missions. Um, it, and it's also things such as um, specialty visits. Um, PCP visits are a lot smaller and same with pharma and others. But when you look at high ticket items, it's always the stay within the hospital. It's also high cost procedures. So the reason why, um, let's say companies like Hinge and Sword, they have done well is because they've worked with the payer system. They realize that they can actually not, um, no, not only delay, but actually prevent, let's say, um, knee surgery or back surgery or other things that may not even have good outcomes, but they can help support someone in um, not having any kind of surgery and or need for next steps within the home at a low digital, a low cost digital solution. Um, so you're seeing some of these take off for that reason. So again, the return on the investment for a typical payer, when you're thinking about total medical costs, it's, it's the 12th to 18th month ROI. If you only, an example could be A1Cs. If you're only able to reduce an A1C, a diabetes um, blood marker, uh, let's say from uh, 12 to 10, within let's say 12 to 18 months, does that really reduce medical cost? It may not, unfortunately, even though it's good for the patient, where are you looking at medical claims to justify how you reduced medical costs is the key to what a payer thinks when they're when you're going after medical cost reduction. Now, when you're looking at a employer, it's a slightly longer ROI. Sometimes employers look at like the three-year ROI because they wanna retain their own employees. They wanna make it sticky. So you're seeing a lot of mental health apps take off because they're supporting employers in keeping people, let's say employees productive in the workforce, not having to take off time. You're seeing a lot of these mental health apps, even for children, when parents don't have to take off time to take their ch child to, let's say, see a psychiatrist, a psychologist for ADHD or autism or other things. And so um, when you're selling to an employer, you have to figure out on top of that, what kind of population. So a Google employee is going to want something different, let's say a company like Northrop Gromlin, which let's say it's efficient manufacturing, which might be different from a FedEx or a UPS. Um, so looking at the employee population and figuring out what your type of solution is for is key. Um, you're seeing a lot of these great um, maternal health companies even taking off like Maven and Ovia that was bought by LabCorp. Um, they actually were also timing them. They timed the market pretty well. And not all of us can time the market and we're not always that lucky. But um, as you can imagine, um, we're seeing, as we mentioned earlier in this call, women's health taking off, even menopause and some of the other things that are becoming kind of front and center for employer benefits managers. And so you're seeing some appetite for that now as we're thinking about um, women returning to work, trying to support um, working moms and or those that want to get pregnant, those that are thinking about starting a family. You're seeing a lot of employers saying, hey, I, I believe in this. I know it's important. Um, and like, I'd like to support you. Now, you wouldn't necessarily see that being a huge offering for, let's say, um, a majority male and or, um, let's say, older population for an employee, let's say an employee base. So you're seeing um, a lot of this start to develop. And Steve, I'm happy to take any questions. I can also go into some detail then as a next step of how I would say any kind of digital health companies are thinking about the um, payer space as they're selling to Hita Stars 
if they're starting to think about Medicare um, populations versus if they're looking at Medicaid, which is slightly different. Usually for Medicaid, by the way, it's there's a lot more focus on maternal care, pediatrics, and also mental health. So that, that's great. And now is also a great time for our audience to ask any, any special questions they have. Um, but so we mentioned, you know, payers, um, uh, they're being hit with these heat of star rating scores, which might be a disappointment. Uh, and that's a big deal. Uh, if you're, if, if you run a, if you manage a plan at a payer and mm. you have a budget, you're going to want to spend some of that budget to try to fix that. And that's good news for vendors who have solutions. What, what other areas are payers spending on in general? Uh, when, when you, when you think of that there's this vendor community that sells tech into payers, um, so that, that could be, uh, e-health, that could be, uh, silver sneakers, that could be um, mm. you know, uh, claims integrity software, that could be, there's, there's a bunch of, of tech products that sell into payers. Um, yeah. What are the areas, I, I've heard a joke that the, the that providers are gonna use AI uh, to upcode billing to payers, and then payers are gonna use AI to fight it. So that, that's oh. like this giant uh, area. Huge growth for the software vendors there, um, but what what other areas do you see as um, you know areas where uh, payer things are changing, payers are experiencing pain, they're spending some of their limited budget on oh, this yeah. or that. Um, so great, great questions. Um, so there's a few key areas, right? So one is like workforce management. So uh, when I was at um, Anthem, you ha we had a group of five thousand clinicians. So you can imagine the salary along those lines. Um, so utilization management, care management, disease management. So there's a lot of workforce enhancement to think about how do you augment um, their work or how do you help them practice top of license? And one of it is if they're doing utilization management, which is prior off, can you then reach into medical records, pull out the data and not necessarily have to have me do a doctor to doctor peer to peer review? Because those take a lot of time. And it, you can imagine all the touch points of when you're trying to get a cancer therapy cleared, um, there's a lot of delay in patient care, unfortunately. And on top of that, um, there's just a lot of waste. And so um, there's a lot of interest in doing prior auth work that's automated. Um, another really key area as we're thinking about this too is um, fraud, waste and abuse. So what do we, uh, any insurance company, whether it's car, house, what, whatever, um, even insurance companies at health systems will think about fraud, waste, and abuse, and how do you eliminate any of those? We looked at a lot of outliers. So for example, like you said, somebody upcodes sepsis instead of pneumonia. There's a lot higher reimbursement if someone codes sepsis. And so we're now at, um, from the payer side, now seeing, can you reduce the abuse or the fraud or the upcoding um, techniques that people are now looking at? And you're right. It's actually a, it's like, catch me if you can. There's there are new ways to always upcode and learn, and then payers learn from it and then try to catch up. Um, so that's been a really interesting space to see. Um, we're talking about workforce management. So we're also looked at automating um, the customer service side, right? So we don't love calling payers um, about who's in network, how do we figure out the provider? Um, so there's a lot of interest in starting to build that. There's also payers wanting to attract the working well. So the Oscars and the others and the Brights have done pretty well. So how do you get those to want to sign on with you? It's through digital wallets. It's through making it easy. It's through lifestyle management. It's through wellness apps. <coughs> so there's interest in that. If you can make it sticky. Um, and then also fi financial acumen. So 
There's also another area we didn't talk about, which is EAP. So payers also um, oftentimes, you know, we talked about digital health work um, for chronic disease management, certain key areas, autism, um, mental health, fertility. We talked about um, sort of different ways that we think about it from the perspective of a payer, but we also didn't talk about EAP. Um, it's basically a, it's, it's a short-term counseling, educational programs, resources for referrals. That's starting to build up a lot too. We supported, when I was at Anthem, several types of programs like this. Um, one included was Ionicare. It's basically, I am not alone. It's a way for people to get assistance and support through um, EAP and payers have to sell this too. Um, so there are different ways to go about it. Um, I will also mention something, you, you know, Steve, you, you talked about this, um, how are payers thinking about um, building out their credibility and or um, preventive care measures. So payers are also thinking about it from the perspective of how do I attract the right type of people to want to sign up? Um, there is a slight trend in that Medicare Advantage and all these types of businesses are starting to build up. Medicaid has gone down a bit because, as you know, the employ, um, unemployment has gone down, but we're still seeing a growth in the Medicare space, as you can imagine, with the aging um, of America and around the world. So there's a lot of focus in trying to retain and enroll and attract Medicare Advantage patients, members. Um, so there is a stickiness to that too. If you're able to offer certain services as a wraparound, you have like a nice box where people come in and here's a welcome package, here's some testing, here's some great solutions, here's silver sneakers. Um, there's a lot of interest in that too. So it depends on who you wanna sell to. Um, and then we didn't mention this part, but for the employer side, Right. You can go direct to employer, which is what a lot of digital health companies do, and they get some people to buy into it. They they sign a contract. But there's also a reseller, right, which is you sell to an insurance company, a, a payer, and the payer resells to the employer and they bundle it. Um, so this is a way where instead of going direct to an employer, you have the payer, you have a contract with the payer and they resell it for you. Um, so. This is a direct, um, this is kind of a way to go through self-insured employers through a payer system. Um, and then also we didn't talk about the provider side, but a lot of digital health companies are saying, why don't I set up a contract with the insurance company, with the payer, so that I can have basically a fee schedule. Um, and you can do this across Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial. It's a standard claim submission. That is much harder. It takes a lot longer to do. Um, it's based on utilization and a case rate, depending on the payer. Um, but that's also a separate way to create a contract. Now, that is different from what we talked about earlier, which is you're a vendor and you're working on an MSA, a SO, like an SOW. It's based on clients. Um, and so but what's interesting is vendors can be both case rate and milestone based. Like, for example, you had X number of people use my use your service. Then you check the box or you had you charged, let's say, a per member per month. Um, and one way to do it, by the way, when you sell to a payer is also you can say, I'm going to charge any member $1 per member per month, and then the payer will now charge the employer $2 per member per month. So they could make a 50% margin. And that's why payers are willing to do that sometimes too. That, that's great, really interesting. And so because of time constraints today, because we're both about to go to a party, um, yes. uh, I'll, I'll, let's try, try to do a couple rapid questions from the audience. So the first is, how do you engage with health plans to find out their needs and priorities? Um, 
for example, finding out the appetite of the health plans on the um, BHP LUTS population. That's Bonnie asking that question. I'm, I'm not sure what population that is, but just how how would people find out, uh, you know, what's going on with uh, and engage with with this is software vendors with innovative solutions, you know, engaging with health plans. How do you even do that? Okay, so um, BHP. I don't know if that's benign prosthetic hyperplasia. It's like a uh, just urinary tracts, certain types of complaints, and these types of things. Um, it could be based on urinary frequency. So when you're looking at that, usually you have to say. Um, so there's a few different ways. If you're a digital health company, you have to think through what population. So my guess is it's more Medicare based. It's probably older population when you're just thinking about certain disease areas. So number one, you have to break down the population, and then you go mm -hmm. after the right type of service. We talked about Medicaid, more pediatric, maternal health, mental health, Medicare, right? Older population, wellness, thinking about some of the other symptoms that they experience versus when you're thinking about the commercial line of business, which is fully insured, they look at cost of care and that's usually the working group. Um, so you have to find number one, the right champion. Um, and then number two, you have to think about the business case. So if it's HEDIS, then there, we mentioned it can range from Chlamydia, ages 18 to 24, to um, FIT, which is 45 and above. So it depends on that age range, too. Um, and then you have to think about then, um, are you thinking about employer? An employer is more the stickiness factor. It's a more lifestyle management, it's wellness. Um, and that's how I would approach it to initially start. That, that's great. I'd also mention, uh, you know, uh, there's AHIP uh, annual conference is coming up. Uh, and I have just gone to AHIP sometimes and I've mm -hmm. talked to uh, you'll you'll meet an assistant plan manager for a health plan at lunch and sit next to them. Uh, or you can walk the aisles of the of the, the trade show part of it. Uh, and you can you know, if you have a couple of questions, you can find out you can meet people in the pair community that way. Also, looking on LinkedIn at people who were recently employed and are no longer employed at payers, sometimes you can call them up, just talk to them uh, on, on LinkedIn. Usually, if they're at a payer, they may be more guarded about, about talking to you. But if they, if they left a payer six months ago, they're usually happy to tell you what payers are thinking about, that sort of thing. So, um, the, uh, um, so Stephen asks, what are your thoughts on payers funding their own startups? Is this activity in, the, in their core area of competence? Um, well, I would just add that a lot of payers have their own venture funds. So there's UPMC Enterprises, there's Optum Ventures, there was Humana Ventures. Um, CVS Health Ventures is now also a payer venture fund. It used to be just a PBM and pharmacy venture fund. There's other, um, there's um, uh, Echo Health Ventures represents multiple payers um, and providers. Uh, and so um, there's, there are, uh, uh, Kaiser Permanente is a, is an integrated payer provider uh, venture fund. Um, so, uh, but I would say, you know, these funds, they're important to payers. They're tiny compared to payers. They're tiny in terms of dollar value and number of people employed by them. And so I'd say it's not, it's not, and, and oftentimes they will say, we don't lead investments. We, we will follow, but we won't lead. Um, so by that measure, I would say that they are, that um, funding their own startups is not a core activity of payers. Uh, payers are enormous companies and the, and the uh, what they, small things they do 
in the world of digital health make a big splash in digital health, but are not a, but are not a big splash compared to them. One exception to that is Optum Ventures, which is itself enormous. Optum and Optum Ventures are enormous as compared to United, um, but for most, it's a relatively small part of what they do. Uh, Liz, any thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think um, payers want to just like providers want to benefit from the upside of a company doing well when they're. Um, helping them scale and think about all the opportunities. And um, you're seeing a ton, I mean, Blues Venture Fund, um, it was a conglomerate of all the blues coming together. So um, I think a lot of payers, when they want to incubate new co's, uh, new, newly established areas, I think it's a great thing. They also do a lot of spinoffs, right? So K-Health came out of um, L events when we're thinking about virtual care. And so they, they we can create all sorts of business models where it makes sense, like JVs and others. And I do think it is a great time for payers to do that, as long as they uh, understand internally what the exit strategy is, what's the ROI, and um, and they can leverage the claims data, the network data, the um, digital health data. So all of these things could be really useful for a startup. And then we have, we have time for one more question. So Carolyn asks, um, how have you seen the best ways to take credit for reducing TCOC if there isn't necessarily a clear progression of the disease like there is for MSK um, and their companies like Sword and Hinge? Um, well, so TCOC meaning total cost of care, right? So the ways that, I mean, I am not the actuary, um, but I think you should work with actuaries. So health economists are all over the board. We I use them all the time um, for a lot of different types of companies. And so when you're able to do that, um, you can say, you know, you reduce either specialist visits, time away from work. That's more on the employer side. But thinking through what are things that support that will be key. Um, so it doesn't have to be just like one bucket, right? It's like medication costs, it's ER visits, it's um, things like that. That, that's great. And I've seen very creative, interesting ways to um, to show benefit uh, and uh, show your impact on total cost of care, um, including, you know, there's there's things like, um, you know, less use of medication in the future because you're more well uh, or more days in the office uh, in the future. For, an employer might care about that, for example. Um, um, that That's great. So, uh, well, so th that's it for our um, for our show for today. So our next show is next week, uh, January 31st, Andy Geist, um, a noted digital health uh, investor. I think she coined the term health tech uh, back in the day. Um, and she's talking about building a scalable health tech company. Um, and I've heard her speak on this topic before and it's great stuff. And then our, our next um, cocktail reception and digital health night of innovation is tonight at 530 in downtown Boston. You can go to stephenwardell.eventbrite.com um, to, to see that event. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so, um, and thank you to our guest, Liz Quo. Thanks for coming on. Anything else uh, you wanted to say to our guests? Uh, I just say, um, find me on LinkedIn. I'm looking forward to getting to know the team here. Um, Steve, you have a great platform. So um, hopefully it was helpful to everyone. And um, yeah, just uh, try to stay in touch. If I could be helpful, would be great. Thank you. Uh, and uh, also everyone be looking for Liz's book, Digital MD, coming out in July. So Thank you. Yep, and thanks to our guests. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye. -bye. Bye.